Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. And today we're going to dive into a topic that's a hard but necessary one. The Me Too movement has revealed sexual abuse and assault in every sphere of society, including the church. Far too often, churches have been complicit in protecting abusers, reinforcing patriarchal power dynamics, and creating cultures of secrecy, shame, and silence. On this week's episode, author, speaker, and pastor Ruth Everhart joins me to talk about the Me Too reckoning. As a survivor of both sexual assault and sexual harassment, Ruth has done her own deep work processing her stories. This is a very important conversation, and one I hope shines light in the dark places and gives a voice to the voiceless. I do want to give you a content warning. This episode contains conversations around heavy topics, including sexual abuse and assault. If you have small children around, please be advised. Also, if you're a survivor and this episode brings up past memories, please seek help for your own healing. Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today on the Her Story Speaks podcast. Great to be here. My listeners have already heard your formal introduction, your resume. Could you just share a little bit, though, like your personal day-to-day life, where you live, who you live with, and what you do? Sure. And of course, that's changed a bit during the pandemic, as it has for everyone, in the sense that I still live with my husband of 35 years. It's just the two of us in a house here in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, kind of outside Washington, D.C., And so we're very fortunate to be locked in together. We still get along and uh, he's a school teacher. So he's, I can hear him upstairs teaching science class, sixth graders. And uh, we have two grown daughters who live about an hour away from us. They're each alone. So we spend a lot of time Skyping with them. Well, I know that we have that in common as far as having two daughters. And I think that I don't know about you, but that's what makes me more passionate about the issue that we're going to, the issue what we're going to talk about. Oh, um, absolutely. And it's having daughters changes you. I read somewhere where you said like, it's your heart walking outside of your body and you can't that's just, right. you can't just be silent and not do anything about the sexual abuse and the sexual assault and what's happening in the church. And that's what we're going to talk about today because at least for me, I've heard too many women say, well, it doesn't matter. I don't want to be a pastor. It hasn't happened to me, but it matters. As women, as women with or without daughters, all this matters. So I appreciate your bravery in sharing what we're going to talk about today. Well, um, thanks for helping spread the word. I appreciate that very much. Before we dive into, you have so many parts of your story, and a lot of times I like to start with people's, like their origin story, where they were born. So let's start with that for you, but we'll just kind of go over that in a nutshell of just your parents, the family you were born into, the Christian upbringing, because that does impact part of your, your part of your story and journey for what happens to you in your 20s. Well, it surely does impact us. And I think that it's taken me um, to be as old as I am to completely appreciate how really formative all those experiences are. Because when you're a child growing up, you just assume that your way of being in the world is the normal way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, that was to my detriment. I, I grew up in a very religious home. We were members of the Christian Reformed Church, which is a fairly conservative denomination. Think of it as the Presbyterians only if everybody was Dutch. Our heritage came straight over from Holland, really in the 1920s. And so uh, one of the hallmarks of that tradition is not attending public school, but only attending Christian schools. 
And that was especially important to me because my mother was a school teacher in a Christian school. She taught fourth grade and my father was a junior high principal in a Christian school. So we were school and church were all kind of this one big package and it was all wrapped up in our catechism lessons. I mean, we literally memorized passages from the Heidelberg Catechism. We went to church twice on Sunday. We uh, did youth group and Sunday school and just Bible class Monday through Friday. So I grew up, I say I grew up in the bowels of the church and did not mind that. I mean, I was a spiritually sensitive little girl and enjoyed sitting in church more than I would have admitted. I never attended a public school environment in my life, which I don't say with pride. I mean, I see it as a detriment, but I ended up going to the college of my denomination, which is Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it has a good reputation in terms of scholarship and so on. But it's very much part and parcel of that way of seeing the world, that particular milieu. And it was there that I encountered this um, brutal assault that really rocked my understanding of the world because without really meaning to think what I'd absorbed about religion was that if you were a good girl, your life would be nice. And it turns out that that's not really an adequate theology for the world or for life or or, or what we experience. And one of those, which I think is so important when we're talking about this, is part of that good girl meant sexual purity. Absolutely. And so that's something that you held on to, which so many girls, women raised in Christian homes have had that message pounded over them to guard your purity with everything. And hence the name of your book, Ruined, because that's what you felt like after the violent episode happened to you. That's right. And so if you don't mind, we'll dive into that a little bit more because I know that really started shifting your faith. But can you share with us what you're comfortable with on that night when you were 20? In your book, you say, when I was 20 years old, my life was destroyed in a single night. That's right. And the the first line of the memoir, which is called Ruined, and you're right that it's it's really a a metaphor for shame, sexual Mm -hmm. shame. Um, uh, the first line is, uh, it happened on a Sunday night, even though I'd been a good girl and gone mm-hmm. to church that morning. And I think my editor later told me that that book, that that line was powerful for her because it does set up that I, I had this working dynamic in my head. And so this was a Sunday night. It was in November. I was a senior at Calvin and really thinking about the future and, um, I lived off campus in a house that I shared with four other roommates. And in the middle of the night, two armed men wearing masks broke into our house and um, held us hostage all night, tied us up, robbed us in turn, and then raped us in turn at gunpoint. They were there all night long. They were there from midnight till about six. And... um, By the time that 6 o'clock a.m. rolled around, I mean, I just felt like I had been ushered into a new reality that I was not prepared for. I mean, it was just one of those world-shifting events where you just can't even wrap your head around it for a long time in terms of in what ways the world has just changed. 
Yeah, because that went against all the theology that you've been taught as far as God gives you what you deserve. You were good. I know you had some incidents in the past that you thought maybe that you got what you deserve, but you really were like, I, this I did not deserve. And my, the God that I want to worship is not, would not do this to someone. And I know, so those next days after you and your roommates, I mean, it was a hard, hard journey. And you being on this Christian campus, you just felt like you didn't belong. All eyes are on you. They really did a poor job of dealing with it. And that's not uncommon. So can you just share a little bit about those days, weeks, months after as far as just the shame you felt when it conflicted with the message you had heard in the church? Well, one thing that Calvinists are taught, you know, is that God is sovereign over all things and which I still believe is true, but how that often gets kind of contorted or twisted is this sense that because God is sovereign, that means that everything that happens is God's will. And so I was overtly taught that everything that happened to me was according to the will of God. And I just think that's theology that needs to be nuanced a little bit because people have free will and not everything that happens is is because God deigned it to happen, but because God allows people to operate in the world with their free will, you know? And so we do suffer from the sins of other people. But I hadn't wrestled that out yet. I was still just believing that, yeah, if something happened to me, it was because God willed it. And not only had I absorbed that, but I was frankly told that in many, many ways and circumstances. Yeah, even, I mean, that's, it's an issue, it's a topic I still wrestle with, and not because I was a victim of sexual assault, but other things, getting a cancer diagnosis or seeing friends die of cancer. I mean, and it's still a message that we moved to the Bible Belt six years ago. And it's just, that's the prevailing message. Everything happens for a reason. God, you know, clearly everything happens according to God's will. And it's, I don't want to teach my daughters that way. But again, I'm still wrestling with it. So that's why I like to really hear how you started making sense of this, because I know yeah. you and your sister really struggled during this time. Yeah, we really, really did wrestle with that. And I think that where I came out is probably to some people's minds, in an unorthodox place. Unorthodoxy is just a nice way to say heresy. I mean, which is just to say it's not what the prevailing, you know, what won in the in the wars of orthodoxy uh, centuries ago. And I think that that's too bad because when we feel like we have to stay within certain orthodox lines, we, we're not able to absorb our lived experience. Then there was this part of me, and I think a really healthy part of me, the healthy part of me that was actually related to Jesus, which was related of the Holy Spirit, which saw that God the Creator had made me and in God's image and I had a value, that part of me refused to believe that there was some reason that God had sent this evil into my life. And it was interesting is that because I had these housemates that were experiencing this at the same time, you know, so we became, think of it like if you have siblings, how you, how you grow up in the same house at the same time, roughly, but you have different experiences, you make different sense out of who mom and dad are, how it is to grow up in this. That's how it was for me and my friends. We made different sense out of what had happened to us. But what I could at least look at them and say, you know, I may be a shitty person who deserves this to happen. You know, if, if I had this kind of unhealthy part of me talking right. to me in my head. But I could look at my friends and go, but you know what? They are really good people. And this happened to them too. So that helped me to really kind of step back from just being all about me and my past and what I had done or hadn't done, but to say, wait a minute, this happened to all of us. And there's no way 
way that we were somehow more more deserving of this than someone else. Right. And what was your response from, you know, you went to a Christian college, and I know because I've read your book, Ruin, but the response that you got from the counselors and the leadership within that college? Well, it was inadequate. It was, and then there were a couple of reasons, I think. One was that, um, as is typical of the, of the crime of sexual abuse, that there is this um, sh- shroud of secrecy around mm-hmm. who the victims are. So what that means is that you're never named in public, yet it's a small campus. There was, you know, I think there's maybe 5,000 students or whatever at the time in the whole college. This crime has actually happened to other households within the community too. So people actually know who the victims are. And so what happens, all the talk about it goes underground and becomes gossip. Mm-hmm. And I was aware of people knowing full well that I was one of the victims and catching them pointing at me or talking about me and then not speaking to me. And when we went to, this was something that I shared with my friends, my my sister victims, when we would go to professors to get extensions or drop a class or whatever, we were just given these cliches, these platitudes, move on, put it behind you and move on. I mean, we were told that within two weeks, within days Mm. of it happening. And I remember, I'm an introspective person. I'm a writer. I think deeply. Um, I think more than I talk, uh, which is why podcasts are hard. <laughs> so it's that thing where you're taking all this in. And I remember, um, I can just remember things that people said to me, specific sentences. And and my reaction, which I didn't vocalize, but you know, my biology teacher said, you know, you just got to put it behind you and move on. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it, I don't know what has happened to me. I mean, I don't know how to put it behind me because I have no idea what it is. You put behind you the fact that you've been physically violated in your most private place, the place that you can't even, even in my, at, at age 20, I was a prude or uh, a naive or unwilling to talk about down there. I, I had no model for how you talk about sexual parts, you know, I had, you know, so there was this, you know, I mean, you have that and then you have the fact that not only are you, you've lost your home because you can't go back home. You, you've lost sleep. You have nowhere safe. Your sense of safety is gone. Your best friends are as terrorized as you are. I mean, what is this it that I'm putting behind? Right. Me? Your whole formal way of life. And then what What are you supposed to be entering? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's just devastating. And it, when I, I read the statistics that one in six women are the victims or attempted victims of rape, it's horrifying. And again, having daughters, it's like this is something that needs to be talked about and out there. And I mean, I think you would agree it is more so, obviously, with the Me Too movement, Church Too, than it was in the 1970s, but we still have a long way to go, especially in the church. And one of those things is with, like we talked about just a bit ago, but let's touch on this more, the purity culture, that you talk about that sexual purity so often in the church is tied to a woman's worth. And that's a reason why women don't want to share their stories about being raped or abused because of the intense shame. So talk a little bit more about that, because now you have the view of a pastor and as a survivor. And and raising daughters because you know raising daughters we want yes that would be great if they could remain sexually pure but I mean there's just a lot of things going together with this message but I think really we need to remember and see why it's not a good message to be putting on our girls that's right I I think that I absorb those messages about sexual purity in so many ways in so many ways were overt and covert I mean remember youth group you know the passing around of a rose when it becomes bedraggled 
because it's passed from hand to hand and you say, see, you know, a woman is like this rose and if she gets passed around, you know, her beauty is gone. Yeah. You know, the metaphors people use about chewing gum or spitting in a cup or all these things that, you know, are kind of intended to make you feel disgust. Right. And then that's applied to a woman's sexuality. I, my father was the principal of the junior high. So I had a certain, I guess I could use the word status, except that communicates being elevated. Um, it was kind of the opposite. I was really, I think, I think that our family was examined even more closely than the families sure. of the preachers in, in our community. Pastor's kids, we, we were, I remember that I wore a, a certain tank top. I had a kind of an orange tank top that I wore with some plaid pants. They were bell bottoms. They were really sweet. You know, I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. old, right? It this, actually might be stylish today though, Ruth. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen, I have a 17 year old. I think I've seen her wear some similar things. It was a great outfit. It was like <laughs> my favorite thing to wear. And it was not an immodest tank top by any means. Mm-hmm. But I remember that I was told that every time that I wore that tank top, that people in the faculty room would discuss whether or not I should be sent home. Mm. And the fact that I was the principal's daughter made that more complicated. Yeah. I, had, I had no idea that people, I was 16 years old. I was I'm a busty woman. I was, I had blossomed by 16. And the thought that my chest was being discussed mm. in the faculty room and that I was somehow being immodest because I happened to put on an orange top that was sleeveless. I mean, filled yes. me with shame. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm starting to sweat just telling you the yeah. story. I mean, it was devastating. And so those kinds of messages, I mean, my, my younger sisters would share the things that people said in youth group and just these messages were, were were really prevalent. But that still is. I mean, I see you had daughters. I see it with my 17 year old, what she has been told very similar things. And so it's like, I'm, I wasn't raised in the church. So I don't have this background of the purity culture, but raising now daughters in the church and in the Bible belt has opened my eyes. And I'm really like trying to figure out what, what is the message? So, you know, my daughter has been told you leads worship. You don't wear these shirts. You don't wear tight shirts. You wear loose high cut. I mean, all of that. Um, And and then you pat, you see, just peel back one layer. What's under that message is simply this, because if you do, then a man might look at you Mm -hmm. and be lustful. Yeah. And so what the message is, is that if I'm walking around in the body that God gave me and a man were to notice that it's shapely and beautiful and feel lustful, that that's on me. Yes. That women are responsible for the thoughts that men have about them. And this is what's so damaging about purity culture. And, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, that we wouldn't have called it that. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. And on top of that, just to raise another aspect of this is that women aren't as good as men. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was communicated in a million ways that women are second-class citizens. And how do you, I'm curious now that you've lived through this, you're a mom and a pastor, how, how did you give the message to your daughter? Because I mean, your daughter's growing up because purity is still... I'm get, I mean, I think I'm trying to make sense of my mind. Purity is still something that we want for our daughters, right? But is it less of a blame on them or is it not even something that should be a big deal? 
Well, I think that purity, um, if you look at it as a fruit of the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. purity, be, be, to be pure of heart or pure of mind, this is an attribute that every Christian is supposed to strive for, male or female. It's a certain kind of orientation of the heart. The problem is that it gets applied exclusively to this kind of physical sexual reality, and it gets it becomes a burden specifically on women. Yeah, that's a good point, because we don't preach this to our sons as harshly right. as and our if, girls. If it's purity of mind, why is it on women who what they're wearing about boys' minds. I mean, there's right. kind of a, a strange twist there. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, Andrea, that you're doing a good job, and you're actually going to do a better job with your daughters than I did. And, and it, you should really have my daughter <laughs> down, and they would reveal to you the many ways that I uh, screwed this up. Because it took me so long to unpack it all. And yeah. some of that unpacking happened while they were growing up and after they were growing up, kind of in hindsight. And that's one reason I really felt compelled to write this book, to write my memoir, Ruined, because I didn't see people talking about sexual shame. And this was before the Me Too movement began. Mm -hmm. Ruined came out in 2016, in the late summer of 2016. And we date the Me Too movement as beginning a year later, really, fall of 2017. So at the time that I was... The book first came out and won this award from Christianity Today Women, and people still didn't want to really talk frankly about it. So my my daughters were old by that time. My my daughters now are in their 30s. Uh, So some of what I think that the processing of that book was for their sake, although I was a little bit late. And so I had to do retroactive work. And the reason I'm bothering to mention that is that you've probably got some listeners who are maybe like me, they're older and they go, well, you know, it's water under the bridge now. Correct. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying is actually you're never done. You're never done being a mother. You're never done being a daughter. And so you can go back and have conversations way after the fact and say, what did I teach you? What did, what did you learn? Whether it was overt or, or covert, what did you inhale from me? And I, I have a feeling that I probably should have done it differently. And I'd love to talk about that. I, we have to extend grace to ourselves right. that, yeah, we're not going to necessarily get it right. The thing is that you're going to have <laughs> one thing that parenting is, is relentless. And so you're going to have another chance because the same yes. you're going to have the next opportunity. And I have an 11 year old following behind my 17 year old. So my 17 year old, I feel like is the, <laughs> a little bit of the experimental, but it's opened my eyes to so much. I mean, it's honestly her and the church that have really, her experience in the church have opened my eyes to so much of this. And it's, yeah, it's a learning process for all of us, but that is such a good point that it's, you can still go back. It's, it's not too late to open and have these conversations. I want to talk so much more about the church and the patriarchy and the sexism there, but let's segue into kind of your next. So in Ruined, you talk about all of this. It is such a good memoir and I really encourage people to read it because it, it opens your eyes to a lot of realities and it's a hard read and, but it's a necessary one because these stories are what helps minimize the shame 
frame and make women realize this this is a reality, but it's something we can speak up against and not be shameful about. With all the wrestling that you had with being mad at God and questioning God that you shared throughout this book, you still felt a call into ministry, which tell us a little bit about that because that does segue into the next phase of really this whole Me Too movement and what you really experienced in the church. Right. So I think that if I had been male, I would have been marked as someone headed for seminary early in my life because as I mentioned, I had a lot of religious sensibility and I, you know, just kind of inhaled the catechism and I really took to heart all these messages that I I learned. But because I was female, that denomination at that time did not ordain women. And even to this day, the ordination of women is a big divisive issue within that denomination. Okay. And at the time that I was making decisions about my future, there were many doors that were slammed shut and then people would try to pry them open and they would be slammed shut again um, as the uh, highest levels of the denomination, you know, kept going through that process of listening to motions to change things. And then you'd think maybe it was going to change. And then once and I kind of engaged with all that in terms of should women in the abstract be allowed to be ministers? You know, it was kind of a theoretical question. And it was a long time before I could say, well, what about me? Am I called? in a ministry. I studied religion at Calvin College. My younger sister actually started seminary before I did. And uh, so they let the Calvin College obviously let women attend seminary, but you just couldn't be in a position of a head pastor or elder or that. You're you're too liberal there. Um, My sister started in the Reformed Church of America seminary. Okay. And I started at a um, seminary in Minnesota that was affiliated actually with the United Church of Christ, although I'm a Presbyterian pastor, PCUSA, just for people who who, who like to know which part of the alphabet alphabet soup uh, you're (laughs) in. But I do remember my my mother saying, um, how can I hold my head up in public? I have two daughters in seminary. Mm. I mean, just, I'll tell you that just to say how painful it was and to know that you're actually bringing shame on your parents about something that could on some level bring honor and I think yes that because knew, knowing, knowing if you were a male how proud they would have been absolutely yeah and I knew I was really growing up and, and turning into my own person when I could say to my mom probably the first really self-differentiated thing I said which was mom you're gonna have to figure that out on your own and you know and, and starting to develop the sense that no me being in seminary is the right place and it's not my problem that other people don't recognize that. And so yeah, I did feel called into seminary. Yeah. And again, when I moved here, I didn't even know that that we went to a Lutheran church in Iowa where we had women pastors. It was not until moving here to the Bible Belt, because again, it wasn't raised in church, that I realized women could not be pastors in a lot of churches. So that opened my eyes because I would say majority of churches where we live, women cannot be pastors, head pastors. They can be like over children. Actually, some churches here won't even let women have that title. So it's not like this is something, and I know my listeners have a big range of where they fall on the spectrum. But this is something that's still very prevalent. The church is so far behind on women's equality. And we'll talk about how that breeds the abuse that is going on. Is there anything you want to add to that right now? Or you want to wait till we dive into it more? Well, I'll just, I'll just say that the reason I ended up realizing that I could attend seminary was because I walked into a Presbyterian church where there was a woman pastor delivering the sermon. And it was a fabulous sermon, which I recount in my memoir, because it was life-changing for me and it was the text was Jesus healing the woman with the flow of blood Mm. 
which is, uh, you know, Mark 5, such a fabulous story, so full of the gospel truth of Jesus reaching out and making us whole. That sermon was the first time I began to understand the power of the gospel and pushing back against the message that women were less than, that women were less than men, men, you know, that women were less worthy or less valuable, certainly less valued. And so that was, you know, just the importance of having those models of having a woman in a pulpit delivering this message where I who knew thought I knew would have told you I knew that story intimately realized that I had never heard it not really and so that leads into the next book that you wrote that just came out not too long ago was the me too reckoning share a little bit about and you just we don't have the time to go into every detail of your story because that's a phenomenal book too because you share your story others that were victims in the church and you tie in scriptures to it of all the women in the bible who were victims of sexual abuse and assault so share a little bit though if you don't mind your story of you go you go through seminary you are applying for jobs as a pastor and your experience and your first job in the church Right. So I became uh, ordained to my first call, which was as an associate pastor working in upstate New York and so excited about it. I had at that time, my two daughters were very young, nine months old and three years old. Went off to that first church and my senior pastor, who was more than twice my age, I was 32. uh, He was newly widowed and he had all this sexual energy for for me. He became infatuated with me. He became um, kind of obsessed with me. And I, I didn't really understand what was happening. We would, we didn't even have the word sexual harassment uh, back then. That word was a new term that was introduced later with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. It was the first time I ever heard that word. But this is what the senior pastor did. He just poured all this sexual energy at me. And it was so detrimental to me establishing myself in this church and becoming the leader that I needed to be. And I had no colleagues that I knew because I had just relocated from Minnesota to New York. I mean, this was before the internet, which is hard to imagine, but you know, people were much more cut off from each other than they are now. And so at one point, uh, um, it escalated to the point that he actually physically accosted me in my office and kissed me full on the lips. And Um, And that's one year in to this. Yeah. And the power he had over you in so many areas of your salary and job security and that, but he did this to you. Full of despair. Yes. Mm. You told your husband and you wrestled with what to do with this. So what, what did you do with it? I know because I've read the book, but share, share what you did with it and the response that you got from the church. Well, eventually I realized that I could not stand to continue without telling someone and without having some support because this was this, I can continued to be in the same milieu and, and be kind of saturated with his attentions. And so I um, I told the personnel committee and they just told me that I that I was wrong. I was mistaken that um, this man had, quote, your Christian love for me. And so I was completely unheard. And then I decided the only way out was out. So I found a new job, which just, you know, very complicated thing to do when you when you start your career and you feel like you have a complete misstep out of the gate, you know, 
do you find something different? Anybody involved the churches know that these search processes are very long and cumbersome. Yeah, and you had moved your whole family, and yeah. it was a high cost of living, and it was it was, it was a lot. Here. Yes, and so many comments. I reread the, some of the chapters today where you talked about meeting with the church board and the comments that you got, and it is mind blowing. But yours is not an excuse me isolated incident. And before this happened to you, I mean, you knew about the patriarchy in the church and the unequal treatment. But is this when it just, I assume, really hit home where you really felt like I need to write and share about this, the Me Too reckoning that the church needs to have? Well, what really what happened is after I'd been in ministry for like 17, 18 years, um, I was invited to a, a conference for mid-career clergy. And it was supposed to be kind of a week away to step back from our lives and discern where we'd been, where God might be calling us next. It was like a renewal event. And I was at that event and I realized that even though I, at that point, had become a quote, successful pastor, I mean, I served the church for a long period of time, the church was doing well. By all appearances, my life was just fine. You know, long-term marriage, two kids, you know, my church is doing okay. I did not feel like a sense of resolution about so much of my past. And in that space of time, you know, and it's such a gift to have that space to look at your life. And, and I realized I had these two big wounds in my life, and they were both about sexual abuse. And when I realized that kind of in the spirit of prayer and journaling and speaking with others in a kind of a confidential small group, I realized how incredibly pissed off I was. Mm. And then I was furious that my life had been so bounded by what men had done to me. And I made the resolution that I was going to deal with it. So as a writer, I decided I was going to do two things. I was going to bring charges against that senior pastor who was still alive. And I was going to write about this sexual assault when I was 20 years old and figure out why it was so damaging, why it made me feel ruined. So I, I just set down the path of doing those two things the next year. I brought charges against that pastor and I started talking to my sister victims about our experience and started the process of writing about it. One of the things let's dive into a little bit that's part of your message. And this quote just really struck me. It says, the price of patriarchy is sexual abuse and people who love Jesus should no longer be willing to accept that anyone should pay that price. And that just spoke so much to me because just having it out there that those two are connected. And I know so many people would never think that and would really have a hard time with this statement because we're still so ingrained in a culture of the complementarian and the women can serve in the daycare and nursery. And I mean, I've had friends tell me when I've brought this issue up that, well, God can still use women. They don't see why it matters. And this when you say that, like it's tied with sexual abuse. So that's not going to be a hard statement for some to hear, but wow, it really clicked with me. So can you explain that to people that just aren't there? Why patriarchy is even tied to sexual abuse? Well, if women are not as valuable as men, if there's this sense that they are less than, they are vulnerable and they're weaker, they are simply not as important. And so when a man can overshadow them and not be called to account for that, and and, and I know the pushback, you know, the pushback will be, oh, that men need to be honorable. Mm -hmm. Um, But why should women be dependent on a given man's sense 
sense of honor. Why can't my value before my creator stand fully up to a man's value before the creator? When women are put in this one down position, whether you call that being subordinate or being submissive or experiencing headship. I mean, you know, I grew up with one set of language about that and now I see another set of language, but what it all comes down to is that somehow we're not fully equal, that we are not sisters and brothers before God who made us both in God's image. And when, when you set up that dynamic, you give men power over women. Well, people will say, well, that's just a husband over a wife, but I I've seen how even that I don't think leads to a healthy marriage. I mean, that's speaking as a person who's been married 35 years and watching other marriages, I I don't see how that's healthy to think that somehow a man should have power or even his wife. I believe in really inequality and and egalitarianism. The reality in those places, it pushes up that, that men in general are more valuable than women. I just think the questioning around that, it to me is just so obvious that, that what women don't deserve that. And that when we when we're told that we do, we do deserve that to be somehow less than of course a given man is going to be able to prey upon us and get away with it. I mean, and why why isn't that working anymore is because victims are standing up in the Me Too movement and saying, no, uh, a man assaulted me and someone else says me too. And, and, and it's not okay anymore. And yeah, and the church is falling behind. I mean, like you said, the Me Too movement really took off in 2017 and businesses and Hollywood, I mean, got more behind it, but the church is not as behind it. And we're really struggling in that. And it's so much because of this inequality with men, men and women. And it's more, it's more than, well, women just can't be pastors. That's what the Bible says. I mean, I guess that's what they're saying, but there's, there's so many layers to that. Right. Because that's cherry picking of certain texts that have been taken out of context and uh, ignoring other, other texts. We've just come through Lent and Easter where Mary Magdalene in all four gospels is the one to stay at the cross. And in the gospel of John is the one to be there at the tomb when she, when the tomb is empty and Jesus appears and as I mentioned in my book um, the first word that the resurrected Lord says is the word woman in addressing Mary mm-hmm. I mean we how, how is it that that doesn't get brought up as as a significant thread in scripture yes of these, these kind of tired texts that we just beat over we beat women over the head with them and yes. you know there's books written on that you want to read about that there's good books out there to read I, I don't even like to talk about it anymore I because to me that would be to say what you're going to question my whole life um you're going to question that I was called the ministry look at the fruits of that ministry I mean look at the blessings of that despite the efforts of men to hold hold that down. And I think one of the things you talk about too is sexual abuse is always the abuse of power. So if you connect those dots, I mean, give us a definition of patriarchy. I know it, but if you're really tying these together. Right. So patriarchy is the belief that men uh, should be able to rule over women, that men have uh, the right to have legal rights that women don't have around, say, property ownership or the ability to vote or to make decisions um, that matter. And patriarchy blesses that notion that, that men are the decision makers and that women just follow along in their tracks. And it was a very, as most people know, I mean, the Bible was written during, a, and Jesus lived during a very patriarchal time. Like you're saying that women that saw him in the tomb, the women's testimony wasn't even count, like that was not even legal or listened to in court, but yet Jesus saw women as 
as equals and not less than. And I think that's the overall picture we tend to overlook so much, focusing on those scriptures of man is head of woman and those that we're taking out of context. Absolutely. I mean, what Jesus did in his ministry by appearing to women first when women can't legally testify to the fact that he appeared to them. I mean, isn't that an interesting choice to make? So interesting to me. (laughs) So tell me, we've gone a little ways in the church, but so far to go. I mean, what do you think are some of the big steps or some of the major, most important steps that churches need to take to start addressing the abuse? Well, I think that in my book, I tell the different stories of abuse within different contexts so that people can see how pervasive it is and how it's how abuse to children, uh, to youth, um, to vulnerable adults, to women uh, in staff situations, in uh, children's ministries. I mean, what I try to do is work with each story in concert with a specific scripture passage. And half of them are from the Hebrew scriptures and half of them are from the New Testament. And I want to tie these together for the reasons, as you mentioned, that that Jesus has a lot to say to this. And the scriptures that we have deal with misogyny. I mean, they were, and we have to look at that as part of our faith tradition, that this is where we come out of. And I think it's just so fruitful to let our own scripture tradition speak to where we are in the current moment. So we can have a contemporary story of abuse. I look at my story of abuse as an associate pastor. And at the same time, I'm also looking at the story of the rape of Tamar from second Samuel. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm saying this is to say the first thing the church can do is to mine its own resources and its own resources are about scripture. And we don't really delve into that. We just, use the same couple of scriptures from the epistles or wherever that we take out of context instead of really looking at a larger arc of scripture, a larger trajectory and say, you know, what does the Bible really say about the way men and women are in relationships? So the first thing we can do is take our own scripture seriously. And that's why scripture is such a big part of this new book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. So I want to look at that, how we're complicit when we create systems that allow certain people to be treated as unequal or less than. And that creates a dynamic, an unequal power dynamic that will then allow abuse to fall on people. And like you said, you go into more details and sharing in the book, The Me Too Reckoning and steps for churches. Yeah, there's a whole chapter called The Way Forward where I kind of lay out other things that churches can do in terms of child abuse prevention policies. I mean, we're doing a little better with abuse prevention than we are with abuse response. And, you know, and I I look at what denominations can do, what seminaries can do, what individual congregations can do, what pastors can do. And, you know, I really suggest if people were to start preaching some of these scriptures, just to open the dialogue, it can do so much. And you can encourage your pastor, ask your pastor to do that. Talk about these scriptures. What about how we as women, how we can just continue to raise our voices on this issue? Well, I think the first thing we can do is tell the truth about our lives. And we can tell our own story and ask our church to tell its story honestly. I mean, I think there are so many women who hide their stories of abuse uh, because they're painful and because they feel shame about it. And so I think on the first level, level, women can just simply speak the truth about the ways that they have been discounted and treated as less worthy and treated unfairly. 
and the way they have paid the price for what men around them have done to them and to simply say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take that anymore. I mean, to just make it elementary, when people hurt you, you say, ouch. And you say ouch loudly and you say it in public and you say you just stepped on my foot and that hurt. I mean, we, we teach our children this language of emotion. Well, I think women can speak the truth and say, ouch, that you have hurt me and, and I'm not going to put up with it. And so often that's a hard one because you're talking, I'm guessing you're talking about speaking up, not just meaning if you've been sexually hurt in the church or abused, but also if you've been treated as an unequal. And that's hard because then we risk losing even more power. That's a hard one, I think. If you are given a little power in the church, but then you feel like you're not given some because of a man speaking up, especially in the church, can have effects in a patriarchal culture on you. It's hard to claim power when you have very little of it. Mm-hmm. And when, um, you, so this is why so many women who are token women in organizations feel silenced because they get the clear message that if they start pushing back, they are going to be silenced and the little power that they have will be stripped away from them. So if you, yeah. you know, you bring up a good idea in an organization and it gets ignored and then a man brings up the idea and it gets adopted. I mean, this is such a common dynamic. And for you to say, well, you get risk being considered a bitch, mm-hmm. uh, being uh, treated as someone who's being loudmouthed. And um, so another thing women can do is support other women when, when they do do those brave things. That um, is so good, Ruth. Yes. Another woman a bitch. Yeah. So now that woman is using her voice to surround another woman and and support her. You know, I, just to say that women can be misogynist too. Women are victims of patriarchy and women enforce patriarchal culture. It's yes. not like when you talk about the patriarchy that that means that women are good and men are bad. Okay. That's it's such a good point. Yes. Simple. We're all shaped by the notion that men are better than women. So often it's in ministry. I'll tell you this. When I had trouble in ministry, it was almost always from other women who were enforcing silence upon If women could just collectively support each other, that would be such a huge step. These are hard topics to talk about, but I appreciate your vulnerability and bravery in talking about them for our daughters. I mean, this is not something that we can just continue to be shamed about and act like it's not a big deal in the church. It is a big deal. And thank you for raising attention to it and allowing me to uh, share my story. Thanks for listening in on this conversation. I hope it sheds some light on the prevalence of sexual abuse and misconduct within faith communities. More importantly, I hope Ruth's powerful story has invited you to explore your own woundedness and healing. God is at work in the midst of the Me Too movement to call the church to repentance and deliver us from violence against the vulnerable. If you want to connect with Ruth or check out her other resources, you can find all that information on the Her Story Speaks website at herstoryspeaks.com. Thanks for listening.